a young would-be Hollywood director named Eddie is walking down a Los Angeles street. He looks into a shop, one that sells caskets for the dead. Laying silently in one of those coffins is a familiar face, a man he had seen many times during his childhood. The old man had been a great horror film star in decades earlier, but now he lays silently. Suddenly, the film star rises, angry about how uncomfortable he felt in the padded box. As the old man leaves, Eddie introduces himself, and the two become friends. It's a wonderful, charming scene in the film Ed Wood, but it was a total fabrication by two screenwriters. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to the 52nd episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly, and here on this show, we like to go beyond movie reviews. None of this it's good or bad thing, none of this rating with stars or any of that nonsense. We'd like to talk a little bit about the history of the film and and those involved. And since this is the first Monday of the month, we're going to talk about a film based on a true story. And, well, just find out how far this film strays from the truth. Today we're going to talk about the 1994 film Ed Wood. But before I get into that, I want to thank Nancy and Gordon for filling in last month. It's so wonderful to be able to take some time off and have the show continue on. And I find everything the Fries talk about fascinating. I hope you did too. So thanks, guys. Now, Ed Wood. I want to point out that I really love this film. And if any time during the podcast I sound like I'm down on it, I'm not. I saw this in theaters when it was first released and enjoyed it completely. I watched it a few times for this episode and still enjoy it. But here's the thing. I don't think it's actually a film about Ed Wood. It's more a fairy tale based on the life of Ed Wood. And there's a difference. And you know, I could really go on and on nitpicking every detail, but I'm going to stick to the, the big picture here. And to be honest, this just gives me an excuse to talk about Ed Wood, and I could do that all day long. Now, first of all, let's talk about this whole worst director of all time thing. I hate that. Watch a film by Jerry Warner, Coleman Francis, then tell me Ed was the worst. In fact, I'd say his actual direction, considering the financial restraints he was forced to work under, wasn't that bad. It's not good, but it wasn't that bad. It's no worse than a lot of the B directors of the time. I mean, Roger Corman's directed worse, for God's sake, and some people consider him a genius. Yeah, I know Ed used a lot of stock footage, and the the sets were cheap, and the acting was questionable, but again, that's more of a money thing. I think the problem with Ed Wood is his writing talent, or lack thereof. He just wasn't a very good writer. I'm no good. Ed, it was just one man's opinion. Bella needs a job. I can't even get a film going. Of course I can. I made the worst movie of all time. Oh, that's ridiculous. All I want to do is tell stories. The things that I find interesting. 
His scripts are just insane. The whole worst director thing began with the Medved brothers in their book, The Golden Turkey Awards. In that book, they claim that Bella in Bride of the Monster said of Lobo, he's as harmless as a kitchen. Well, Medved brothers, what Bella said was, don't be afraid of Lobo, he's as gentle as a kitten. Anyway, I could go off about Michael Medved, but I'm going to let it go. But truthfully, I don't like him. The film was directed by Tim Burton. Tim was born in 1958 and worked as an animator for Walt Disney before becoming a film director. He made some classic films such as Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Batman and Batman Returns. And then he made some not-so-classics like The Dismal Planet of the Apes, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Alice in Wonderland. Edward was pretty early in his career being his sixth film. Tim said in an interview, The first film by him I saw was Plan 9 from Outer Space. It had images I'll never forget. Later he was elected worst director of all time. How could anybody be elected as the worst? There are so many bad filmmakers. I started reading about his life and the bizarre characters that surrounded him like Bela Lugosi. Wood was always positive, even under the worst circumstances. When you read his letters, you realize he thought he was making great films. He thought he was making Citizen Kane. In a letter from his final days, Wood wrote that he had a great life and made great pictures. And, in fact, he was abandoned and dying of alcoholism. That's what fascinates me about his character. He was very weird. I think one reason why filmmakers and artists in general appreciate Ed Wood, he represents that fear that many of them have. That no matter how much you believe in your work, no matter how much you think you're doing something fantastic, there's always that possibility that what you're making isn't very good, but you're just not bright enough to know that, you know? Anyway... The film was written by the team of Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. It was their third film after writing the first two Problem Child movies. They would later go on to write some other biopics, such as The People vs. Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, and Dolomite is My Name. According to Wikipedia, they coined the term anti-biopic to describe the gender they invented. Movies about people who don't deserve one. They are uninterested in the traditional great man stories. The two problem child films were a disaster for the team, and they wanted to move on to something different, so they decided to write a biopic of Ed Wood. In an interview with Paul Rollins on the About Money Into Light website, Larry Karaszewski said, So when we were at SoCal, Scott and I had heard stories about Ed Wood and his relationship with Bella Lugosi that this transvestite movie director had taken care of this old man when no one else cared. We always thought that this would make a great film, but no major studio ever financed it. The early 80s was the beginning of the bad movie festivals, and Ed Wood was a figure who was very much being made fun of. He had earned the name the worst director of all time. After Problem Child didn't really turn out the way we had pictured it, we thought, let's go back and try to restart our career. Let's go and make that small, independent movie that we wanted to make. Let's make Ed Wood. He said that if they had done Ed Wood before Problem Child, they might have poked fun at Ed and his films. 
But after what they went through with Problem Child, as well as talking to Michael Lehman, who had just done Hudson Hawk, a film that bombed at the box office, they looked at the story with a lot more sympathy. Larry said, We had two mission statements on Ed Wood. Number one was to make a love story between two guys, Ed and Bella, and number two, don't play up the badness of Ed's movies, but focus on the passion for making movies. Ed clearly had a messed up life, but he loved movies. He loved making them. His movies were really coming from a very sincere place. The film stars Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, Jeffrey Jones, and of course Bill Murray as John Bunny Breckenridge. According to Larry, Bunny wasn't much of a major character in the original screenplay. It was only after Murray was cast that they added some more funny lines for Breckenridge. I don't think I need to talk too much about the cast, except for Jeffrey Jones, and that's because he makes me so angry. Knowing what he was into makes it so hard to watch some of his films now, and he was in some pretty wonderful films. Thanks for ruining those, Jeffrey. Now, the film opens with the play Casual Company. It was a play Ed Wood based on his unpublished novel, I think loosely based on his war experiences. offer you mortals the bird of peace so that you may change your ways and end this destruction. This is all true, though I don't believe people like Dolores Fuller or Bunny Breckenridge were involved, but that's okay. To do a biopic, it's often necessary to consolidate characters. Ed Wood wouldn't meet Fuller until the early 50s when she answered an ad Ed had placed in the paper looking for actresses. Fun fact here, when she went to see Ed, she was with her friend, Mona McKinnon, who would go on to play Paula Trent in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Now, if I understand the history correctly, Ed originally performed the play Casual Company in 1945 when he was still in or just out of the Army. The production shown here, I believe, was from 1948 when he opened the play at the Village Playhouse. Just for fun, I found an actual review from the morning after the play opened. It was from the Valley Times by Henry Arnston. He wrote, There should be a Be Kind to Plays week so that the dramas like Casual Company, which opened last night at the Village Playhouse, could be characterized as something that must be seen. Unfortunately, no such period has been designated, so the local offerings must be tagged as a ho-hum production. No matter how you approach Edward D. Wood's play, it will be found lacking the essential ingredients that make up a successful farce, the kind the producers strove for, but which plotted hopelessly and with a great deal of effort. He goes on to say that Ed acted in the play as the commanding officer of the group and called his acting uneven. So that scene holds up pretty well, I think. Anyway, earlier in the film... Ed walks down the street in Hollywood and looks into a shop and sees Bella go see lying in a coffin. That's the scene I described in the opening of the show. Too constrictive. I can't even fold my arms. Gee, Mr. Lugosi, I've, I've never had any complaints. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. Your selection is quite shoddy. You're wasting my time. When Ed learns that Bella's taking the city bus to get home, he offers him a ride in his convertible, and the two have a nice conversation. It's a wonderful scene, but it wasn't the way they met. In truth, Bella was living with a man named Alex Gordon, a British film producer and screenwriter. 
Alex was looking for a project for Bella and had two scripts, The Atomic Monster and The Hidden Face. Later, Ed would rewrite The Atomic Monster and call it The Monster of the Marshes. It eventually was released under the name Bride of the Monster. I have no problem with the way this was done in the film. It's a charming scene, and I believe it was meant to show the the close relationship between the two men. Another dramatic and funny scene is when Dolores Fuller, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, first reads the script for Glenn or Glenda. The music swells as she gets up from the bed, opens the bedroom door, and there's Ed, dressed in her clothes, including her Angora sweater. What kind of sick mind operates like that? And what about this, this so-called barber character that's obviously me? This was a very funny scene, but while Dolores knew about Ed's fascination with her Angora sweater, it wasn't until the premiere of the film when she learned about him being a transvestite. According to Dolores, Ed only let her read the parts of the script that she was in and didn't allow her on the set when he was dressed as a woman. She said, When I went to the premiere, which was released months later, and saw Eddie in his woman's clothes, the wig, the dress, and everything, I was very embarrassed. I was there in a room full of people, and it was so embarrassing. I wanted to crawl into a hole somewhere. I almost think that would have been a more dramatic scene, right? The film's playing, all our friends are around, and the camera slowly moves in on Dolores, her face embarrassed and full of horror. And I doubt this scene ever happened. You people are insane! You're wasting your life making shit! Nobody cares! These movies are terrible! Dolores thought Eddie was really talented, and I don't believe she would have said such a thing. I will say that I thought they treated her character as, well, a simple, not-too-bright woman. The real Doris was much more intelligent, and according to Fuller, was much more of a partner to Ed than portrayed in the film. Also, she made a point in a lot of interviews to say she never smoked, unlike her character in the film, who's always smoking. There's a scene in Ed Wood where Bella appears on a TV show and can't handle the improvising by the host. This was based on a time when Bella appeared on the Red Skelton show with Lon Chaney and Vampyra. Although I read that Bella did have problems with Skelton improvising, it didn't quite go over like in the film. It's on YouTube. You can watch it yourself. Bella plays along and he's wonderful. He's not the lost and confused old man that he's made up to be in the film Ed Wood. In fact, he walks off the stage singing in the first bit and comes back to play in a second skit along with Vampyra. Bella really looks like he's enjoying himself, and he gets the joke. Now we take him to my secret laboratory in the graveyard. That's the only place where can I work. It's so peaceful in the graveyard. But I'll give the filmmakers a break here, since they didn't have YouTube like we have today. And that leads into one of my major complaints about the film, Ed Wood, and that's the character of Bella. Martin Landau does a fantastic job, but Bella, in the film, always seems lost, like a feeble old man who doesn't quite know what's going on. This is far from the truth. And in interviews with those who knew Bella, they often comment about how he never used bad language. That was most likely added for a comic effect. And I think the bitterness towards Boris Karloff might have been highly exaggerated. And, of course, they left out the fact that Bella had wives. 
When he met Ed, he was married to Lillian Arch, and the two had a son together, Bella Jr. And from what I've read, he had a few large dogs, not those little yappy ones in the film. He remarried in 1955 to Hope Lininger. Now, when Ed was making Glen or Glenda, Bella understood what was going on, and he even turned down Ed's offer for $500 a day for one day's work. It was Bella's wife, who's not in the film, who convinced Bella to take the part because they needed the money. He ended up getting $1,000 for his one morning shoot. I read a story that when Bella was in rehab, he was visited by Frank Sinatra, who had heard about his problems. Sinatra gave him a $1,000 check to help pay her expenses. I'm not, I don't think it was true that he had to leave before treatment was complete due to financial reasons. In fact, there's a famous interview Bella gives on the day he left the hospital, and he mentions Ed Wood. feel like your old self again. You feel, I feel like a million dollars. You feel like regular really folks, huh? Sure. That's yeah. best. I'm looking forward to work again. I understand that. I had an assignment uh, playing the star part in uh, The Google Goes West. Uh -huh. Yes, and uh, Eddie Woods Eddie would be the yeah. producer. And you're going to enter that as soon as you leave there. Surely. I wish that was played up more, because when Bella went to rehab, it was a big deal. In the 1950s, for an actor to seek treatment for drug addiction, it just wasn't done, and a very brave thing for Bella to do. Now, of course, the part of Bella Lugosi was played by Martin Landau, who does a marvelous job and won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. At this point, I'm going to take a break, and Russell is going to tell you a little more about the man... Martin Landau. Take it away, Russell. Hello and welcome to 2023 Celluloid Day fans. Russell here with a look at life and career of... Edwards Oscar-winning co-star Martin Landau. Martin was born June 20, 1928 in Brooklyn, New York. Originally a cartoonist, he worked on illustrations, editorial cartoons in New York Daily News and for the comic strip The Gumps, which had been very popular in its day and was one of the first strips of ongoing continuity. He left cartooning in 1951 to pursue acting as a career, his first role being in the off-Broadway stage play First Love. He and his best friend James Dean sat around and dreamed of stardom, and in 1955, Martin auditioned along with 2,000 others for the famous Lee Strasberg Asper Studio, the home of method acting. But only he and another guy named Steve McQueen got in. McQueen already knew Landau, as he had seen him riding on the back of James Dean motorcycle into the New York City garage where Steve worked as a mechanic. Martin later became an acting coach at the studio, with pupils including Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston, and ultimately he became an executive director of the studio. Also at this time, Landau began appearing in the Livetoire TV anthology series, now known as the Golden Age of Television. These included Playhouse 90, Studio One, Craft Theatre, Omnibus and several others. Examples of these are easily found on YouTube these days, but I'm not sure how many of Martin's plays are out there. He also began appearing in Broadway plays such as The Middle of the Night with Edward G. Robertson and in movies, firstly the Korean War drama Pork Chop Hill 
and more notably, the 1959 Hitchcock thriller North by Northwest, where, as the villainous heavy Leonard, he tries to push Cary Grant off Mount Rushmore. He was also in the epic Cleopatra as the brooding Roman Rufio and played a ruthless killer in the Nevada Smith, opposite his old friend Steve McQueen. He also continued on TV, playing memorable roles in The Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, among others, which led to Martin Landau starring in the TV movie The Ghost of Sierra de Cobra, which we covered on Sunny Lloyd Days some months ago. He was offered a role in a new TV series from Desilu, but said, It would have been torturous. I probably would have died playing that role. I mean, even the thought of it now upsets me. It was the antithesis of why I became an actor. I mean, to play a character who speaks in a monotone, who never gets excited, never has any guilt, never has any fear, or was affected on a visceral level. Who wants to do that? So he told Gene Roddenberry that he didn't want to be Mr. Spock, and instead joined Desilu's other new series, Mission Impossible. In this, he played Roland Hand, Master of Disguise, and in contrast to the Spock job, he got to play, in effect, a different character every week, and often multiple characters at that, as the Impossible Mission Task Force battled various spies, gangsters, tinpock dictators, and forthright Nazis up to no good in its fast-paced caper plots. Landau also had the benefit of acting alongside his wife Barbara Bain, who he had met through the actor's studio and married in 1957. Mission Impossible was a big TV hit and won multiple Emmys for Best Dramatic Series, while Barbara won Best Actress Emmys for three years in a row. Martin was nominated for Best Actor but lost out. They continued in this vein for three successful years, and Martin also made guest appearances in Laugh-In and Get Smart, where Max disguised himself as Martin to avoid chaos assassin much of the Chief's disgust, but trouble was brewing. Co-star and nominal lead Peter Graves went in for and got more money than his co-performers, but Landau's contract stipulated to get as much as anyone else, and coupled with other manipulations by new penny-pinching producer Douglas Kramer, the Landau's left in a huff, with Leonard Nimoy taking over from Martin as a disguise expert. This sort of rivalry was not uncommon on 60s TV, and in the case of Mission Impossible did no one any good, as the series dropped from number 11 in top 20 TV shows and never returned, while Martin and Barbara struggled to find parts worthy of their talents. They had a few guest roles in TV series and movies, but Salvation appeared in the form of Space 1999. The full story behind this series would take its own celluloid day zip, but briefly, British TV production team Jerry and Sylvia Anderson wanted to do a TV series called UFO 1999 Set on a Moon Base Defending Earth from Alien Attack, which is a follow-up to the UFO sci-fi series of 1970, but they needed Hollywood stars to make it sellable in the US. Their backer came up with Martin and Barbara, which Sylvia balked at, thinking they were totally unsuitable, but the money men insisted. The Money Men also wanted a show more like Star Trek, as that had gone from being the poor relation to Mission Impossible to being a big hit in syndication, so the Andersons compromised with a show set on a moon base, which is blown out of orbit and hence visits New Planet every week. The new series was the most expensive ever produced in the UK, and a top-notch production team was assembled with FX and sets to rival the recent 2001 A Space Odyssey film. The Andersons, however, found the Landau's difficult to deal with as they played the Hollywood royalty part of the hilt, with Martin interfering in scripts and casting to make sure he was the centre of attention at all times, while Barbara insisted on being only shot from certain angles and that other things like guest star Joan Collins' legs be covered up, to which Jerry retorted, We hired Joan because of those legs and by God we're going to get our money's worth. 
once the specs are overcompensating for coming out on the short end over Mission Impossible. More importantly, rather than just be made as the Andersons wanted, the series was subject to constant interference from the US end of the market, who would want action one week, aliens the next, then monsters and so on, the net effect being like trying to drive a car from the back seat using ropes tied to the steering wheel. The series was badly programmed in the UK and panned by most critics, who accused it of being a Trek rip-off and Bain and Landau of being wooden actors, but it did well in syndication in the US, and the second season went into production, but meanwhile Jerry had split with Sylvia. Former Mission Impossible producer Fred Freeberger was brought in to replace her, but her absence and the dumbing-down direction Fred went with meant there was no third series. Landau then had a string of unsatisfactory roles. He was in 1979's disaster movie Meteor, which was a huge flop, and then in low-budget sci-fi horrors without warning The Being and Alone in the Dark, and reached his career nadir along with Barbara in The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island a TV movie which has not so much jumped the shark as make it do several somersaults in the air. They both starred as mad scientists, not unlike Bela Lugosi's last role. Also like Bela, he took up the role of Dracula on Broadway, but his career finally got on track again when Francis Ford Coppola selected him to play the important supporting role of Abe Karatz in Tucker, The Man in His Dream, for which Martin was Oscar-nominated as Best Supporting Actor, and he won a Golden Globe for it. He was again nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Woody Allen's 1989 film Crimes and Misdemeanors. Landau starred as Judah Rosenthal, a successful eye doctor who tries to prevent his mistress, played by his former pupil Angelica Houston, from revealing their affair to his wife, played by Claire Bloom. He finally resorts to ruthless action with the aid of his mobster brother. Allen said, I just couldn't find anyone good for the part of Judah. He read it and he was completely natural. It's an interesting thing. Of all the actors I've ever worked with, he gives expression to my dialogue exactly as I hear it. His colloquialisms, his idiom, his inflection is exactly correct. So of all the people who ever read my lines, he makes them correct every time. One of the reasons for this must be that Martin Lando came from my neighbourhood in Brooklyn, right near where I lived, only a few blocks away. The film received critical acclaim with Roger Ebert giving it four stars, writing... The movie generates the best kind of suspense because it's not about what will happen to people, it's about the decisions they will reach. We have the same information they have. What would we do? How far would we go to protect our happiness and reputation? How selfish could we be? Is our comfort worth more than another person's life? Alan does not invade this question, and his answer seems to be yes, for some people it would be. Martin finally got his Oscar with Ed Wood, with a wonderful portrayal of screen legend Bela Lugosi. Landau researched the role of Lugosi by watching about 25 old Lugosi movies and studying his Hungarian accent, which contributed to Lugosi's decline in acting. I began to respect this guy and pity him, said Landau. I saw the humour in him. This, for me, became like a love letter to him, because he never got a chance to get out of that. I got a chance to make a comeback in my career, and I'm giving him one. I'm giving him the last role he never got. Landau also received a Screen Actors Guild Award, a Golden Globe Award and a Saturn Award for the role, as well as allocates from a number of critics' groups. Gregory Walcott, who was in the film, watched a screening of it at the Motion Picture Academy and said that the Academy members gave Landau a hearty, spontaneous applause over the end credits. Sadly, Barbara Rain did not share Martin's limelight as they divorced in 1991, but his daughter Juliet did as she has a role in the film as Loretta and would later appear as Drusilla in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series.
Lindau's film roles in the 1990s included a down his luck Hollywood producer in the comedy Mistress with Rob De Niro and as a judge in the dramas City Hall with Al Pacino and Rounders with Matt Damon and Ready to Rumble in 1999. He played the part of Jacob, son of Isaac, in the 1995 biblical TV miniseries Joseph and was a warm and memorable Geppetto in The Adventures of Pinocchio in 1996. Matt Martin continued to act and be nominated for awards up to his death in 2017 and has had a posthumous release of the independent sci-fi satire Without Ward in 2022. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Russell. Some really interesting stuff there. You know, back in the 80s, yeah, I'm that old, I had a job where I just watched movies all night long. It was for a company that duplicated videotapes. And I remember getting these bad horror movies and one of them had Martin Landau in it. I remember thinking how sad that was that this once great actor was resorting to these bad, cheap horror movies. And then I remember being so glad when I saw Crimes and Misdemeanors. And to me, that was a fantastic film, and he was so good in it. And it was great to see him come back later in life. Anyway, interesting stuff there, Russell. Thanks a lot. Now I'm going to get back to Lagosi. In an email, Russell reminded me to talk about Lugosi's funeral. He died in 56, and over 60 people showed up to pay their respects, not the handful of people like shown in the movie. Some of these people were his fourth and fifth wife, Lillian and Hope, his son, some Hungarian filmmakers that he had worked with, and people that worked on his films in America. Of course, there was Ed and his wife, Kathy, along with Ed's former wife, Norma. Glenn or Glenda producer George Weiss was there, Forrest J. Ackerman, who is the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, Carol Bolin, who was in Mark of the Vampire, and many of the Ed Wood actors, including Tor Johnson, Paul Marco, Conrad Brooks, Dudley Manlove, and Loretta King. I also read one report that says Vincent Price and Peter Lorre were there, so the film isn't too accurate when it comes to that point. Now, in Bride of the Monster, there's a bit of controversy. In the film, we see Ed looking for money, and he meets Loretta King in a bar where she offers to finance the film, some money that she just recently inherited, if she could play the part of Janet Lawton. Also in the scene, she claims that she's allergic to fluids. Hi, would you like some water? No. No water. No liquids. I'm terribly allergic to them. You know, I work in Hollywood. I'm a producer. Really? Wow, I would love to be involved in that. Is that right? Now, this story, from what I can understand, came from Dolores Fuller, who told this in many interviews. However, Loretta King always disputed this, saying that she and Ed never discussed money, and although she didn't drink alcohol, she did drink fluids like water and tea. Her thought was that Ed decided to cast her in the role and made this story up as to why Dolores didn't get the part in the lead. Who knows what's right? Tor Johnson, the film makes it out like the Swedish professional wrestler who was known as the Swedish Angel was discovered by Ed, and that's not exactly true. Tor had been acting in films since 1936, 29 years before Bride of the Monster. Now, most of Tor's acting before were uncredited parts, so to give Ed credit, Bride of the Monster gave him his first starring role. Now, between the two women in Ed's life in the movie, Dolores and Kathy, there was another, Norma McCarthy, and the two got married in 1956. They were divorced the same year. 
Ed had apparently kept his love of ladies' clothes secret until after the marriage. When Norma discovered that Ed was a transvestite, she couldn't handle it and left. Apparently, this was filmed for Edward, but was cut from the final film. This might explain why later he's so upfront with Kathy about his fetish. The biggest part of Ed's life that's left out of the film was Ed's alcoholism. Ed was an alcoholic. I heard in an interview, and I can't remember who said it, but someone who knew Ed said, the only thing Ed loved more than films was booze. Dolores Fuller said of all the things she did for Ed while they were together was to keep him off the bottle for three years. And, you know, eventually it would be drinking that killed Ed Wood. Now I thought I'd talk about a few parts of the film that were accurate. George Weiss, who was a Hollywood producer of low-budget, trashy films, was set to make the Christine Jorgensen story. Of course, he failed to get permission, like he says in the film, and Ed did convince him that he was the perfect director to make the story. Well, Mr. Weiss, look no further. I'm your man. I work fast and I'm a deal. I write and direct, and I'm good. I just did a play in Hollywood, and Victor Crowley himself phrased its realism. There's about 500 guys in this town that can say the same thing. On the phone, you said you had some special qualifications? The stealing of the octopus was real. And it was true that Bella was known to walk around the streets of Hollywood with Ed and recite the I Have No Home speech. Home. I have no home. Haunted. Despised. Living like an animal. Ed Reynolds was Ed's landlord, and he did want to make religious films. Ed did convince him that making Plan 9 from Outer Space would help finance those films. Although, Reynolds later said that it wasn't him who changed the name from Grave Robbers to Plan 9. He said he wasn't even aware of the name change until he heard the movie was playing in Texas. Oh, and the cast getting baptized in a swimming pool to get funding for the film? That actually happened. It was true that Myla Nurmi, a.k.a. Vampyra, decided not to speak any dialogue. She thought that what Ed had written was so bad she would rather not speak. And Ed did use a megaphone when directing, like in the film. By the 1950s, no one did this anymore. I'm guessing that Ed had that romantic vision of the classic Hollywood director and his megaphone. In a later interview with Marlon Nurmi, she said that Ed wore it well. Now, like Ed Wood, I'm a huge fan of Orson Welles. So the scene in which Ed meets Welles while making Plan 9 bugged me a bit. Oh, not the fact that it never really happened. I understand why it was added to the film. But Orson in the film claims that the studio wants him to make a picture with Charlton Heston playing a Mexican. Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when that happens. And they're always trying to cast their buddies. It doesn't even matter if they're right for the part. Tell me about it. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal, but they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. Wrong. He's talking about the film Touch of Evil from 1958. It was Heston who brought in Wells to direct, and at the time, the lead character was named Mitch Holt, and it took place in San Diego. Orson rewrote the script and changed the location to a Mexican-American border town and changed the lead character's name to Miguel Fargus. So it wasn't the studio making Orson do this. And by the way, by the 1950s, Orson didn't look like that anymore. He was much older, much grayer, and much more heavy set. 
I know I'm nitpicking here, but like I said, I'm an Orson Welles fan, so hey, if you don't like it, get your own show. But like I said at the beginning, I do like this film a lot. Yes, the details are wrong, but I believe they captured the spirit of Ed and Bella, which was their main point. Though they may have gone too far with the jolly gee whiz thing. And like I said, Ed's alcoholism was ignored. In fact, when Ed met Kathy, it wasn't in the hospital waiting for Bella. She actually claimed that he was in a bar drunk and she helped him out. Dolores Fuller said she loved Johnny Depp's performance, though she admitted he wasn't always that upbeat. He had his bad moments. I like to wear women's clothes. Panties, brassiers, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. And I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I really like you, and I don't want it getting in the way down the road. Does this mean you don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Okay. Okay? Now, the film gets an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. Most people seem to like it, like David B., who gave it 5 out of 5 stars and wrote, The truest story about B-movie director Ed Wood's attempt to make a masterpiece is lovingly crafted, and the ragtag motley crew of characters that come together to make pictures are funny and heartwarming to watch. I agree. Brian A. also gave it 5 stars, and he wrote, a masterpiece about a filmmaker with heart. Made some of the worst movies ever made. I also find it a tribute to showbiz in the 50s and to the late Bela Lugosi. I think you're on the nose there, Brian. Alexa F. gave it four stars, and she had this to say. I thought this was a good movie. I don't know what was fabricated or true in terms of the Edward story, but I give the guy credit where credit is due. The man had a passion for film. Did not expect this to be a Tim Burton film. Well put together. Hey, Alexa, you know, I do a podcast and I can tell you what was fabricated and what wasn't, so just saying. Most seem to enjoy this film, but Ron G. gave it only two and a half stars. He wrote, If you've got nothing better to do for two hours. Really, Ron? I think you could say that about most forms of entertainment, right? You know, when reviewing a film, you might consider giving the reader, um... Something, I don't know. Some opinion that might help them? Anyway, Cass S., well, she or he didn't appreciate the film, giving it only one star. Artistically, I'm guessing the whole point was to make this so-called biopic as bad as Wood's actual films, because this is terrible. Johnny Depp doesn't always make a good movie. The only shining point in this pile is Martin Landau's sad portrayal of the broken Bela Lugosi. Oh, that's pretty harsh, Cass, and I don't agree with you at all. Jason S. gave it two stars, and he wrote, I thought it was somewhat okay. <laughs> Not quite the ringing endorsement there, Jason. You gave it below average marks. You might want to explain why. And lastly, Joe S. gave it just one star, and he wrote, I thought it would never end. You're entitled to your opinion, Joe. As for the music in this film, I liked it. I mean, for the most part, it was just music used in Edward movies, but redone with great sound. 
Now for me, there's always that dark cloud hanging over my head when I watch this movie. What he was into in his later years. The pornographic films and novels he was writing. In 1960, Ed did his last mainstream film, and that was called The Sinister Urge. And in that movie, one character says, There was a time I used to make good movies. A lot of people think that was Ed talking about himself. Turn to the right! The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But <laughs> biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hide. I got more than I can handle. A little bit before I go. You know, I've always been confused about the ending scene of Bride of the Monster when Bella fights the octopus. I remember watching the film in high def and thinking, that's not Bella. That's a double in that scene. Of course, in the film Ed Wood, it is Bella, and I've heard an interview with Paul Marco, who played the character of Kelton the Cop, and he says that he was there and it was Bella. I still don't know for sure. You know, I was into Ed long before the Tim Burton film, ever since I saw It Came From Hollywood in 82. When I heard that they were going to make a film on Ed Wood's life, and they were only concentrating on the years of the three films Glen or Glenda, Bride of the Monster, and Plan 9, I didn't get it. I thought the later years would have been far more interesting, you know, a rise and fall type thing. But since then I realized I was wrong. The later years would have been so darn depressing. Hey, listen up. I have a Facebook page. I'd love to read your comments on it. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. I have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. I post daily there. And for an update on my Twitter account, I'm up to 50 followers. Hey, I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. My email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid all mean one word. Feel free to email me for any reason. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you get this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Again, I would like to thank Nancy and Gordon for filling in during December and to Russell for contributing to today's show. And of course, I thank all of you for listening. I'll be back next Monday, where I'll be talking about one of my favorite movies, Raising Arizona, the Coen Brothers masterpiece. Take care. So long. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkies. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can play the piano.